Dr. Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, and welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm honored that you're here. On this episode, I'm pulling an interview out of the archives. This one originally broadcast on the radio. It is an interview with a fellow broadcaster, legendary interviewer Bill Boggs. And we talked about a number of things, about the art of the interview, something he and I are both fascinated with. And of course, for anybody who knows Bill Boggs, we had to get into the topic of Frank Sinatra. And there was a number of other things we got into relating to Bill Boggs. We talked about his public speaking, his early days, a good mix and a good introduction to Bill Boggs. There was a second interview with Bill Boggs, which I will bring out of the archives at some point. Thanks to everybody who listened to the first interview of 2021 with the great Will Friedwald. Will, of course, mentioned Bill Boggs in that interview, and it got me thinking about this one. I thought it was a good exchange, and what can I say? I appreciate Bill Boggs, so I thought, let's bring this out there. If you want to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour, which is getting all these interviews out there, you can do so. Just go to thepaulleslie.com. I have some big, big dreams about what I can do this year. I've got goals. I want to get a lot of these interviews out there. There have been some people who have donated recently, a little here and there, and I appreciate that a lot. Just go to thepaulleslie.com. Up at the top, it says support the show. Click there. It only takes a few seconds. Well, I'm not going to keep you waiting any longer. Let's get into the interview. The first interview of Paul Leslie with the great Bill Boggs. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to welcome four-time Emmy Award-winning TV host, interviewer of legends, correspondent of my generation on PBS, Our special guest, Bill Boggs, is a TV personality, a public speaker, and an author. You can look at his website. It's BillBoggs.com. Bill Boggs, thank you very much for being with us. Paul, thanks for the invitation. I want you to kind of take us back a little bit. If we could hear, if we could listen to what was going on in your house, what would we hear? When you were young, when you were... You're still a very young guy, like in, in middle school or junior high. You know, I have the same house since 1950. Okay, junior high school, let's say junior, if junior high school was, say, 7th and 8th grade, I was able to walk to junior high school unaccompanied. I didn't need the guards or anything. I was able to make it myself and back. And I was a safety on the corner, helping other kids to prevent their getting run down by cars. I, Northeast Philadelphia, the Taconi Mayfair area. And then when I returned home from school, no one was there. My mother went through, my father was, who would be working. He had a vacuum cleaner business. And my mother went to work when I was in about sixth grade. So it was unique coming home from school without any parents there. I had various chores that I had to do. I was like vacuuming. I vacuumed the whole house. And, and then, you know, at some point by the end of the day, my father and mother would be there, but I would have already gone out playing if it were this time of year. On a day like this, I would have been playing baseball, but would have had to sadly be home at 5.30 for dinner. 
And the dinner table was, it was all the same dining room table and everything. Pretty, it wasn't one of these tables where, you know, my father threw out subjects and then we all discussed them or we had, you know, Aristotelian logic. We just kind of, you know, talked about the day. My mother always made home prepared meals, the concept of, uh, although we'd like to go out to eat every once in a while. But I had a sister who was a year and a half younger than I was. So we probably just be talking about the day. And then afterwards, if it was a school day, I'd have to try to get out and play some more. A huge amount of team games, stickball, you know, Philadelphia is famous for its street games. We played ball tag on bikes, wire ball, stickball, half ball, obviously touch football. My favorite was stickball in the playground down the street. I uh, was my friend Steve Dershimer, who is a lifelong friend. I since third grade. I, I saw him a couple of weeks ago where he's like a brother to me. And then, you know, back if I had homework to do, I, I try to get through that. And I had a record player in my room. I, w- I always would work at jobs. I, I, first job I ever had was selling things door to door on my bicycle when I was, well, actually, when I was a junior high school, I was working the corner grocery store a couple of days a week. So I always had, you know, a little change in my pocket to buy records. And I would be listening to, uh, you know, rock and roll uh, in my room, playing it too loudly and do my homework and go to bed. So it was, it was a peaceful, innocent time, Paul. Innocent time. Now, you just mentioned the records that you played. So before you got into Sinatra, what were you listening to? Right. Oh, I, I'm just old enough that I essentially was going through puberty at the birth of rock and roll. Uh, you have to be born like in the, in the, you know, essentially the early 40s in order for that to happen. So I saw Elvis when I was 14, believe it or not. My mother somehow got tickets to when Elvis was going to be at the arena and thought of it. So Elvis, Chuck Berry, Fat Domino, Little Richard, I mean, the original inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Everly Brothers, who I'm going to end up uh, working with at some point a few years later. All of the core groups of rock and roll, the platters, I love the platters. And also you had in Philadelphia, Bobby Rydell, Fabian, Frankie Avalon, a huge amount of music. I've been listening to music for as long as I can remember. When I was a little kid, I remember listening to songs on the radio and trying to write them down, make my own hit parade thing, hit parade on television. So I'm a, uh, you know, a hardcore rock and roll person uh, who really was educated by the masters. I, I mean the masters. I've seen Little Richard perform. I've seen Chuck Berry perform. I've seen Elvis perform three times. I've seen Fat Domino perform. I've seen the Platters perform. I've seen almost every act I liked when I was young perform live a couple of times. So that's how it started for me. Can you recall when you fell in love with the voice of Sinatra? Well, in in my household, my mother and father loved big band music, and they loved music. And what, in fact, we always were listening to music and watching music and specials and stuff on on television. If, if Frank was on television, with his, I don't mean his big specials, but you know some of those early shows from the fifties. We were always watching that, Peggy Lee, big band music, and so forth. I always liked Frank Sinatra, tremendous amount. I had a very open mind for music. It wasn't like, hey, I, I'm. I'm 15 years old. I like rock and roll. I can't like Frank Sinatra. Music was all over, was much less compartmentalized in my youth than it is now. In answer to your excellent question, when did I first fall in love with the voice of Frank Sinatra? It was actually the total persona of Frank Sinatra, whom I have seen perform about 120 times live. Amazing. Uh, was, thank you. It was in the early 60s, Paul. 
Frank Sinatra was working at the 500 Club, owned by Skinny D'Amato, a guy who stood by him during the very down period in his life. And Frank was doing three shows a night for Skinny D'Amato. The Philadelphia Inquirer said this is the hardest, the hardest reservation, meaning ticket to get in the world. The place, there, there are literally, you can go online and look at it, mob scenes outside the 500 Club. So I wanted to see what this was like. And I was working as a very young guy. I always have been hustling to work money. When you grew up in Philadelphia in a middle class, middle class neighborhood, you learned to hustle to make a, a, a buck in an, in an honest way. So I was working as a bellhop at a hotel underage and decided that I would sneak into the 500 Club with my friend Dave Fixler as an accomplice just as busboys. So we found out from guests at the hotel where we were working in Ocean City, what the busboys wore, white jackets, black pants, black bow ties. And we got those, those ensembles from our restaurant, and we walked right in the back door of the 500 Club, through the kitchen, into the main room 10 minutes before the show started. The place was packed. The opening act was Buddy Lester. I'd never been in a nightclub before. The first time I was ever at a concert was Elvis Presley. first time I was ever in a nightclub was Frank Sinatra. And when Frank came out, we were probably a scant 30 feet at the most, at the most, away from the stage. We took off the busboy things, put on long ties to look like customers, and stood by a pillar. And once you started to perform, nobody's going to come over and throw you out. And there we were. We snuck into the 500 Club, and that night I became mesmerized by Frank Sinatra. The fact that he was projecting and emoting real feelings that he had the crowd in the palm of his hand. And I think as a performer, as an entertainer myself, I've learned a lot by watching Frank over the years. So it's a long answer to your question, but I fell in love with Frank Sinatra and his total persona and his voice when I snuck in to see him as a teenager at the 500 Club in Atlantic City. There's an essay about this. It's going to be placed on my website. That website is billboggs.com, B-O-G-G-S. You're so known for your interviews, and anyone who wants to watch these interviews, so many of them, they're are over 200 of them that are on YouTube. What is it that attracted you to interviewing? Why is Bill Boggs an interviewer? Yeah. I think that, you know, I'm going to give you a quick answer. I'm one of those lucky people who made a childhood dream come true. When I was a little kid, I was watching TV, and my favorite people on TV, and these are forgotten names, are Arthur Godfrey, Art Linkletter. These guys have like, daytime shows, and they were, they were interviewing people, and I wanted to be like those men when I was about seven, eight years old. I have pretty much wanted to be in show business and wanted to be on television my entire life and made that dream come true. It's a childhood thing where I was, they just seemed to be having a good time, and the only real gift that I received from on high was the ability to be a very good public speaker. I won a public speaking contest citywide in Philadelphia when I was about 12 or 13. Beat a lot of really, you know, black people a lot smarter than I was, but I beat them. So I knew that I could perform, and that's how I got into it, Paul. How do you learn to be an interviewer? And how did you personally, Bill Boggs, how did you learn to be an interviewer? Well, first I just had the confidence that I could do it. And there was a, I was working on a show as the talent coordinator, and one time, once a week, on-air person in my hometown of Philadelphia. The show was called McLean and Company. A wonderful host named Bob McLean who came down from Toronto to work in Philadelphia on this show. And I used, I watched him 
And he was an extremely good listener. You know, he wasn't looking, okay, question number two, question number three, question number four. And I asked him about it. He said, just keep your mind open and keep and listen. And uh, so hence, when I got my first show, which was at WGHP-TV in High Point, North Carolina, and I had that show for three years, and we beat the Today Show all three years. We beat double the Today Show's rating with my local show. I really, I practiced down there. I just practiced that. You know, I went to a small market. And if, if I had stayed in High Point my entire life, I would have had a great life. I loved it down there. I lived out. In fact, it was the most sophisticated lifestyle. We you know, drove to work in my convertible with the top down, did a television show, went out, played tennis in the afternoon, swam in my pool, went for walks with my dogs, and it's a pretty nice life. And why I left that to come to New York for a one-bedroom apartment, I don't know, but I did. What is the secret to a good interview? You just mentioned listening. Listening, yeah. Yeah, listening. If you're having a conversation with somebody, you're really essentially listening to them. You're, you're really not programming your next question. So I always say listen with the intention of understanding rather than responding. And if you understand what somebody says, you have a natural response. Hmm. Interesting. Just kind of what you just mentioned. Who do you think does that other than yourself? What interviewers out there do you think have that skill of being great listeners? Well, there's all kinds of interviewers now on television. You've got all the people. I like all of the people on CNBC, like Maria Bartiromo, who's now on Fox Business, a very good interviewer. She's smart. She knows her subject, but she's a specificity. She's interviewing essentially in the world of business and finance. In terms of generalists, I mean, the only, you know, I thought Regis was a good interviewer. In terms of generalists interviewing show business people, I think Charlie Rose is excellent on a huge array, a huge array of subjects. And then, you know, over the years, I had, I, I like Letterman very much. Jimmy Kimmel is brilliant, in my opinion. You know, but he's more of a comedy interviewer. Letterman uh, interviewing and comedy. Carson was a very good interviewer. Jack Parr was a very good interviewer. One of my all-time favorites, I mentioned Dick Cavett. David Frost, going back some period of time. I think Bill O'Reilly is very good, and I think Bill Maher is very good. Both Bill O'Reilly and Bill Maher, who represent totally different sides of liberal conservative, are extremely good interviewers for their point of view. Hmm. Now, there's a clip on your YouTube channel of you and Howard Stern. Right. I'm very serious with this question. What is your impression of Mr. Stern? What do you think of him as a media personality? Oh, he's brilliant. He's a brilliant, he's an excellent interviewer. He, I should have added him to the list. He meditates, you know, he's a major meditator, very focused, brilliant, in my opinion. Howard Stern is brilliant. We were talking about Sinatra earlier. How did you get the interview with Frank Sinatra? I just met him at 4 o'clock in the morning in Caesar's Palace. I was introduced to him by Julie Rizzo. I had done a, an event for Sammy Davis Jr. years ago when I was working at the Dean of the University of Pennsylvania managing a comedy team at the same time. And Julie introduced me in uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, Easter Sunday morning, 1975. Frank had been retired for a couple of years. Maybe you saw that retirement concert on the, on the four-hour special documentary all or nothing at all. I happened to be at that retirement concert uh, anyway. And at the end of the conversation, which was, we just bonded. I mean, I told him my mother was a Bobby Soxer. I told him about sneaking in the 500 Club and how much his music meant to me. 
and we just had a conversation. You know, it wasn't like I was, it was one-on-one, about 10 minutes. And at the end of the conversation, Frank said, Julie says you have a show on five, meaning channel five in New York. I said, yes. He said, well, Bill, I, I'm Billy, he called me out. Billy, I don't want to promise anything, but I'm going to be in New York in September. Now it's April, right? I'm going to be in New York in September with Ellen Basie. Maybe I'll come by and do your show. And that's how it happened. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I had, when, as soon as he said, maybe I'll come by and do your show, my, what do you think my instant reaction was, Paul? I imagine your heart started to beat faster. I simply said, Frank, I'm not asking for anything. Huh. He said, I know you're not. Maybe I'll come by. And he did. And it turned out to be, I believe, the longest interview of his career and the first time he was ever on a talk show. And uh, as a result of that, you know, I was in his company many times and was, became, uh, it was, I was able to get to buy, although sometimes they would comp me, I didn't care, good tickets. And I probably took, in my, I know I saw Frank over 120 times live in the four, over 40 years. I probably took several hundred people at my own expense to see Frank Sinatra. When he died, I got calls from all over the world, people saying, thank you, Bill, for taking me to see Frank. Mm. I just wanted to share with them what I loved and believed in. This year, 2015, it's the centenary year of Frank Sinatra's birth. Could you define what it is that makes his recorded legacy so timeless and so loved by many? Wow. Well, great, great material. Although not all of it is great, but you know, most part, 1,550 songs recorded, great material, classics going all the way up to the 60s and 70s era, songs like Cycles and That's Life, uh, I think are wonderful hits, Summer Wind, wonderful hits, Latter Day, you know, not American, so-called American songbook, hits, so great material, but the voice itself somehow had the ability to make it, make you feel as if he was singing just to you. And that's what my mother said captured her when she was a Bobby Soxer, that feeling sitting in the audience. So I think whatever the frequency of that voice is, combined with his brilliant acting ability, combined with arrangements that were stunning, shimmering, brilliant arrangements, Nelson Riddle, Don Costa, Gordon Jenkins, look at the a huge amount of, of beautiful rangers, Frank, whom Frank worked with. I mean, that's a big, long answer, but I, there's just something coming from the core of Frank Sinatra that connected to people. That's it. If you could pick one song, is there a Sinatra song that you would say, that would be the Bill Boggs theme song? Oh, yes, I have one. I have one. And it believe that it's not only The Lonely, no. <laughs> it's not Where Are You. It certainly is not satisfy me one more time, I'll tell you that. It is my theme song for the last, oh, I would say since the early 90s, has been, I've been a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn and a king. (laughs) I've been up and down and over and out. And I know one thing, each time I find myself flat on my face, what do I do, Paul? I pick myself up and get back in the race. That's, that's life. My, that's my theme song. You're an inspiring guy and a motivating guy. Just oh, just, just like that song. So tell us a little bit about this thing that you do. You go around the country. You've written a book. Yeah. And- I'm going to be in L.A. I'm going to be in L.A. the first week in May. I wrote a book 
for HarperCollins called Major Publishing House called Got What It Takes, Successful People Reveal How They Made It to the Top. And there's some things in there about Sinatra, but I interviewed people like Dr. Mehmet Oz, Donald Trump, Diane von Furstenberg, uh, Richard Branson, Matt Lauer, people from the whole Joe Torrey, Bill Bratton, a whole wide array of successful people about the inner workings of them that made them successful, you know, and plus I've been interviewing successful people all my life, so this book came out did very well, and then suddenly there was like a demand, no, I mean, it wasn't like people knocking down my door with axes, we want Bill Bob to speak, but there is a demand for me as a speaker. I mean, anybody listening now who may be interested, just go to my website, billboxspeaks.com, and if I can come and help you with something as a speaker, man, I will do it. I love it. It's just another form of performing for me. So I have a whole website, billboxspeaks.com. The other one you mentioned, billbox.com, that's where you've got the YouTube link. There's also a link on there to my, on uh, Sirius, Seriously Sinatra, and there's a one of the two essays I wrote about Frank is now available there. So, so I have a lot of fun doing it, Paul. It's a, it's like a third act, you know, in your life, you have to continue to evolve and grow, challenge yourself and reinvent yourself. And when I wrote this book, I thought, well, we'll see what happens. And some very good things have happened as a result of it to me. Thank you. What is the best thing about being Bill Boggs? I'm happy. I've had an unbelievably happy life. I've been blessed. My mother told me, get this, get this. I knew the night you were conceived that a special boy was coming into this world. I had a wonderful mother. I had a father who was like, would make John Wayne look like a pansy. I was raised by really good parents at a beautiful time in just a simple neighborhood in Northeast Philadelphia with a little bit of talent. I've made my dreams come true. So I'm just happy, Paul. I have a relationship with a woman, Jane Rothschild, that is the best thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm not kidding. Well, maybe it's not the best, but it's the best relationship. <laughs> we are really happy. We are really, really happy together. I mean, amazingly happy together. And that's a good thing. I'm in my apartment in New York looking out at the Hudson River. I'm talking to you. I'm going to have a workout. I'm we're rehearsing some musical stuff with Peterson Cotty this afternoon. Life is good. Life is great. For anyone who is listening to this interview, just yeah. totally open-ended, what would you say to them? Attitude is a matter of choice. Savor every precious day of your life. Ask yourself this question. You know, what? at the end of the day, I've exchanged the day of my life for whatever I did that day. Whatever you have done and I have done, we put it, go to sleep tonight, we've exchanged one day, gone, never will come back. Ask yourself a question maybe, you know, what can I do to ex- improve my exchange rate? How can I have a happier, better day tomorrow? What, what can I do to improve? And just continue to evolve and grow and adapt and change. Change is inevitable. Growth from change is optional. It's a lot of stuff. But I, I talk about things like that sometimes in, in my my talks around the country to executives and schools and stuff like that. I love to talk to schools, not the school itself. I mean, students in the schools. It seems like you're a man who enjoys a very good meal. And I enjoy a very good drink, too. Uh, I do, yes. A little known fact is I was on the Food Network for 10 years. I had three different shows on the Food Network. You see a lot of those clips on my YouTube channel. The YouTube channel, by the way, is called Bill Boggs TV. Bill Boggs TV, but if you go to the website, you can get there. 
Yes, I, I do enjoy a good meal. I've always enjoyed fine dining. Now I basically just enjoy what I call cleaner food. I don't go for the tasting menus like I used to, but I went through that period of time. How about you? Oh, man, I, I love a good meal. And I think you can find out a lot about a person by what they eat. You know, they say you are what you eat. Yeah, Quincy Jones said that to me. He said you can find out a lot about a person by what they eat and what they listen to. I would have to agree. We know you love Sinatra. If you could have any meal, what would you have? Thanksgiving dinner. Come on. So much to be grateful for. Complete Thanksgiving dinner. All the trimming, you know. And back, back at that table with my mother, father, and sister, all of whom are gone. I'd be pretty happy. My last question. Who is Bill Boggs? Who is Bill Boggs? I think that I've answered a lot of that already in the interview today. But I have to, it's esoteric. It's a very interesting question. Who is Bill Boggs? I mean, I am basically, I'm a guy who still has his house in Philadelphia, who goes back there, who best friends are the friends he made 50 years ago, who made his childhood dreams come true, who's still striving ambitiously to use his talent and do work that's of value to people. And I'm a guy who loves to have a lot of fun, man. And when all is said and done, a lot's about the fun. As Carson the butler said uh, the season before last on, on Downton Abbey, no, this season on Downton Abbey, in the end, it's all about the memories we have, isn't it? I've got a lot of good memories, Paul. With more to come. With more to come. The best is yet to come. <laughs> That's what's on Frank Sinatra's tombstone. Yes. Well, Mr. Boggs, thank you so much for this. I appreciate you sharing. Paul, it's been my pleasure. Call me anytime. There's a lot more to talk. In fact, if you want to call me sometime and do an interview and have me tell you Frank Sinatra's stories, I've got some really good ones. It's been a pleasure. Really, an absolute distinct pleasure. I appreciate you reaching out to me, Paul Leslie. I wish you good luck and good health. And you're a wonderful interviewer. Ask good questions. Don't interrupt. Do a lot of, do a lot of listening. I'm looking forward to hearing the show myself. Thank you very much. And you just opened the door for Bill Boggs Part 2. So thank you for that. I'll be happy. All right. <laughs> as, we used, as a disc jockey used to say in Philadelphia, high lit. So nice, we're going to play it twice. So neat, we need to repeat. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Goodbye.